From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. So for me, the problem has a lot to do with providing weapons to a country that is at war, like is the case of Saudi Arabia. In December, the U.S. sold almost 500 million in bombs to the to um, Saudi Arabia, plus 100 million in communication systems. Welcome back to season six of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. President Biden has cut off U.S. support for offensive operations in Yemen and related arms sales to Saudi Arabia, making good on a campaign promise. But relations in the region are complicated at best. Here to shine some clarity on the mess is Miami Law's international and comparative constitutional law, Pablo Rueda Saiz. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Pablo. Nice to have you back. Thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be back. Good. Um, let's start by setting up the board. Who are the players? Okay, so there are multiple players in the war in Yemen. There is the Yemeni government, the Houthi rebels, who are Shia militia from northern Yemen, as well as other local militias from different parts of the country, including secessionist groups in the south, specifically the Southern Transitional Council, as well as transnational organizations like Daesh or ISIL and al-Qaeda. Um, there are also foreign governments as well involved. One group of countries is supposed to be um, acting as a coalition, the Gulf Corporation Council, or GCC, which is led by Saudi Arabia, but also includes other countries as Oman, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. Now, I say supposedly because in reality, The United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia um, back different or have different positions and they support different factions in Yemen. The Emirates support the Southern Transitional Council and the Saudis support a faction led by Abu Mansur Hadi. Um, On the other hand, there's Iran that supports the Houthis, the Shia militia from from northern Yemen. So, not at all complicated. No, not at all. (laughs) So, how did the the Arab Spring play out in Yemen? It seems like it triggered an actual tug of war between the the Houthis and the the fall of the Hadid government. Do I have that right? Well, yes, to some extent. The situation in Yemen is very much a consequence of a clash between groups like the supporters of of Rabu Mansour Hadid, which we talked about, were backed by the GCC. Now, this faction generally sought to prevent the spread of a destabilizing force like democracy uh, or an Iran-backed revolution after the Arab Spring. Another faction is comprised of groups that became frustrated with a lack of political change after the Arab Spring. They became radicalized and started resorting to violence, allegedly backed by Iran, although Iran has denied any involvement, any military backing of the Houthis. During the Arab Spring, a movement of different groups within Yemeni, within Yemen ultimately deposed uh, Saleh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was Yemen's president for more than 20 years. 
However, the GCC and especially the Saudis saw the Arab Spring and increasing movement towards democracy in the region as a threat to their own hold on power in the country. So they placed place Hadi, who was then the vice president of Yemen, in power to ensure that the old structures of power were maintained intact, despite the, the position of Saleh. By 2014, the movement that gave rise to the Arab Spring in Yemen had dissolved. The Houthis, were heavily armed and backed by Iran, decided to take over the capital, Sana'a. They did so successfully. So Hadi, uh, the GCC-backed president, had to flee to Saudi Arabia. The interesting part of it is that two former enemies, the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh, and part of the army that was loyal to him, decided to become allies against the Saudis and Hadi. But that only lasted until 2017, when Saleh spoke publicly about bargaining with the Saudis. Two days later, Saleh was killed by the Houthis. Now, the attacks led by the Saudis have been cruel as they have been relentless. There have been more than 19,000 airstrikes in the last four years, um, all, of course, um, done or carried out by the Saudis and yeah, the, the coalition. And we have seen the images of countless civilians, especially young children, killed or injured by these strikes. Now, what I want to highlight here is that this lack of distinction between military and civilian objectives constitutes a violation of international humanitarian law. And it's a war crime, basically. Now, to maintain these types of military attacks, you need not only the necessary capital to provide the aircraft or the weapons, you also need training. And you need someone, either a state or a government within this, that state, or at least a corporation that is willing to provide them. You need someone who is willing to provide weapons to a country that is carrying out war crimes against the civilian population. And these violations of international humanitarian law are not the end of it. The Saudis also blocked access to food and med medical provisions for civilians by land, air, and sea. And this is also a violation of international humanitarian law. But the Saudis are not the only ones to commit such atrocities. The Houthis do it too. The Houthis steal and burn food and destroy medical supplies. Moreover, they also claim they blasted military targets, such as oil facilities in Saudi Arabia, although this is not a violation of international humanitarian law. And the U.S. claims that it was actually Iran and not the Houthis that um, destroyed such facilities. Okay. Okay. Enter the U.S. So, how did the U.S. get involved uh, in in Yemen, and why? And does this go all the way back to 2000 and the uh, the attack on the coal, the USS Coal? No, actually, there is ample evidence that shows that the attack was planned. Uh, the attack on the USS Coal was planned and carried out by Al Qaeda, and there was some involvement of a government. Uh, however, it was the government of Sudan at the time. In fact, Sudan was sued and found liable in the Ninth Circuit in the U.S. And there were two different people, both of you know, Yemeni uh, nationality, 
but also of Saudi citizenship uh, tied to Al-Qaeda that were considered to be the masterminds of the attacks. Um, but you have to bear in mind that Al-Qaeda is only a minor play, player currently in Yemen. Okay, so, but the U.S. has been involved in, in Yemen for some period of time? Yes. And, and so are we going back to the Obama administration and it changed during Trump and now we're looking at changes coming from Biden or kind of what's the TikTok on that? Okay, um, well, the extent to which the U.S. is actually involved in this conflict depends on the way in which you approach the problem. So for me, the problem has a lot to do with providing weapons to a country that is at war, like is the case of Saudi Arabia. In December, the U.S. sold almost 500 million in bombs to, the, to um, Saudi Arabia, plus 100 million in communication systems. Now, so was this under Trump or under? Under Trump. Okay, under Trump. so that was his like parting shot. Yes. Literally a parting shot. <laughs> So the arms trade, I think, is a big part of the U.S. involvement in Yemen. Arms are a profitable business, and unfortunately, the U.S. has been selling them to a country that was using them to kill civilians. So I do applaud the decision of the Biden administration to stop selling arms to the Saudis. And I believe similar decisions should follow with respect to the United Arab Emirates, to whom the U.S. is actually selling far more arms than to the, uh, the Saudis. And that other countries like the UK, Germany, and Russia that sell arms should follow on their footsteps. For example, just to show you a percentage of how the arms trade is a factor in of international involvement, 60% of all UK arms exports go to the Middle East. Now, for me, this is definitely a form of involvement in the region. And it has huge consequences for the prospects of peace in Yemen. Okay. Um, now, yeah, go ahead. Just, just, just uh, last point. Now, as, as to the motives of U.S. involvement, we need to be honest and remember that the Saudis wanted to prevent the movement for, uh, for democracy from spreading across Yemen and into their borders. Initially, it was a trend towards democratization and greater participation during the Arab Spring that was feared by the, by the Saudis. Now, unfortunately, this led to the rise of the Houthis and the Iranians got involved. And this currently does pose a threat, a real threat to the Saudis. It is no longer democracy that can spread across the border. But nevertheless, the initial involvement of the Saudis in the situation in Yemen after the Arab Spring was an attempt to quash democratic sentiments. So any long-lasting peace agreement should at least tend to increase the participation of different factions in government in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so, so the U.S. doesn't really have a dog in, in the fight in Yemen specifically, but more deals, side deals. Help me understand that that what what we're doing now and what Biden maybe wants to do, because I know like a year ago, everything 
went straight to hell with the peace agreement that had been brokered in Sweden collapsing and and as you said plunging the country into the one the world I think it's called the world's worst humanitarian crisis now so can you kind of walk us through the the Trump administration and the Obama administration sure the the strategic moves that happened during yes. that one yes well first of all I do not believe that the Stockholm agreement is to blame I actually believe that there have been some tactical errors and some haste in the strategy of this agreement. But other treaties like the Geneva Treaty or the Riyadh Treaty also failed, although they failed for different reasons. More importantly, though, I, I do not believe that there has been any strategic moves on the part of the either the Obama or the Trump administration. And I think that is, this is part of the problem. The problem, I believe, is that U.S. foreign policy in Yemen is simply flawed at the outset because it is conceived as part of its policy, toward, its policy towards Saudi Arabia. And I think this is a huge mistake. There are many other players besides the Saudis that are deeply involved in the conflict. And even beyond this, the U.S. nowadays, after all that has happened, simply cannot ignore that the situation in Yemen should be assessed in its own right. This is beyond its policy towards Saudi Arabia. So I get really worried when I hear that President Biden refers to the situation in Yemen and immediately thereafter speaks about the security of the southern border in Saudi Arabia. I fear that this is not the way to tackle with the problem. A comprehensive solution that actually incorporates various groups and countries involved is necessary if the U.S. seeks to have some positive influence on the humanitarian crisis there. Okay, um, and and has a uh, uh, Biden and and this uh, Anthony Blinken signaled any like ready to wade into the fight or you know watch the space to see what happens next? Well, I don't know exactly what they seek to achieve, but I do feel that if they want to have a long-lasting peace in this country, they need to be prepared to, be pre to play various simultaneous cards at a time. Let me illustrate what I mean. First, they need to be able to address the involvement of the Saudis and show them very clearly that they have a lot to lose if they do not stop killing civilians. I believe the issuance of the report with respect to the participation of MBS, the Crown Prince, in the assassination of Yamal Khashoggi in the embassy in Turkey is a step in the right direction. Moreover, the U.S. also needs to get the Iranians involved if they seek to gain some reign over the Houthis. And for that, the U.S. needs to be prepared to negotiate, among others, the terms of re-engagement in the nuclear deal. But the international panoply of involved players does not end there. The United Arab Emirates is also involved in the Southern Transitional Council, the separatist movement in, in southern Yemen. Um, and they would also need to be on board for any peace treaty to succeed. And finally, the U.S. should also get other arms selling and arms supplying countries on board as well. Controlling the borders in Yemen is almost 
possible because there is no state control at all. There's no state. However, if the U.S. is serious about controlling the arms trade, it could significantly help reduce the violence in Yemen and simultaneously, you know, help to reduce the threat to Saudi Arabia. So I think arms trade, the arms trade is a key component to what is going on in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, so in closing, anything else that, that the U.S. government should be doing, the U.N. should be doing to kind of ad- address the, the crisis on the ground as soon as possible? Yes, maybe. Well, first of all, the U.S. needs to act within the U.N. And secondly, the role of the UN has been marked so far by kind of uh, very small scale micro treaties dealing with some of the factions, but not with others. So the UN needs to deal with, and the US for that sake as well, need to deal with all the players involved um, simultaneously. Uh, because otherwise they're going to be continue to um, create agreements, small-scale agreements with one faction or another, but they're not going to be able to have all the factions on board committing themselves to a long-term peace agreement. Right, a long-term fix. And meanwhile, people are, are dying and going hungry and yes. and everything else. So I think if you look at morass in the dictionary, it would just point to this. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your time as always. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Okay. I'll, I'll see you soon. Stay healthy. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's Built Concentration, preparing tomorrow's lawyers to deal with significant changes to business models and technology possibilities. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash academics.